Thanks, Carol. Uh, please keep your Bible open in that passage. It's uh, where we're going to spend our time for the next half hour or so. Um, a passage, just like every other one in the Bible, that uh, was uh, inspired by God 2,000 or thereabouts years ago. And uh, the same spirit who uh, enabled Paul to write this letter and its contents uh, to encourage the Philippians uh, is also with us now. So let's pray that uh, as we consider this word, spirit and word would work together in our hearts and minds to help us live for Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that very simple and yet crucial prayer. Uh, help us not to approach your word uh, as a merely human document or even ourselves as merely natural beings but rather to see the spirit at work in both, in your word and in our lives, uh, in our very selves, so that we might take your word to heart and it might transform our hearts and minds and help us live for the cause of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. As I mentioned, uh, this letter uh, written a long time ago uh, to a place far, far away, uh, Philippi, a Roman colony. Uh, it was written, as we can see at the beginning there, by Paul and also Timothy. Timothy um, is a co-author actually of five of Paul's letters, did you know? Um, it, but it's hard to know exactly what to do with his co-authorship because although Paul gives him that mention uh, at the start of those letters, uh, Paul then goes on to write in the first person. So he always writes about I uh, from, from that point on. But anyway, there you go. Uh, Paul, Timothy was with Paul. I think that's a very important for us to understand uh, when Paul was writing this letter. It was around about the year 50 AD, so uh, Paul's, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, that's not right, this letter was written around about the year 60 AD, uh, but Paul had first been to Philippi and taken the gospel there around about 10 years previously, around about 50 AD, as part of his, uh, what's known as his second missionary journey. Uh, and you can read about that, and perhaps he did uh, during the week maybe in your growth group or in preparation for today, in Acts chapter 16. One of the beautiful things about Acts is how well it uh, lines up and dovetails with so many of the letters. And we can find about the origin of the church in those places that Paul then writes to later down the track. And Philippi is one of them. Uh, and Acts chapter 16 is a fantastic read. I encourage you, if you haven't gone there, go there. Um, you'll meet Lydia for example. So Paul uh, arrived in Philippi with his travelling, uh, with his gospel partners, his travelling companions. Uh, their intention, as always, was to find uh, a synagogue. Uh, that was the first thing they did, to go and find a Jewish synagogue where they could share the good news to those who should uh, receive it with joy because they've uh, known the Old Testament scriptures which point to Christ. Uh, but in Philippi, uh, there was no, apparently no significant Jewish community uh, and therefore no synagogue. Paul and his companions didn't give up hope, though. Uh, it was not uncommon to find a place of prayer uh, by a river. And so down they went to the river at Philippi, and sure enough, they found uh, some people at such a place. And, and Lydia was one of them, uh, known as someone who believed in God, a God-fearer, and yet hadn't heard the good news. It simply hadn't arrived yet in Philippi. Paul and his companions explained the good news of the gospel uh, to Lydia, and we read in Acts 16 that... God opened her heart to receive the gospel. So Paul was the messenger, but God opened her heart to receive the gospel, and she was the very first believer uh, in, uh, in Jesus Christ in Philippi. Uh, we're not sure exactly how long Paul and his companions stayed in Philippi, whether it was 
weeks or months. Uh, but sometime later, Paul found himself in jail. Not uncommon for Paul uh, to find himself in jail, not because he was a criminal as such, but because he brought the gospel. And the gospel was a revolutionary message. The gospel shook things up. It caused trouble uh, in all sorts of different ways because it challenged uh, the, the status quo. So there's Paul in jail, uh, and uh, the church has begun because Lydia has, has uh, become a Christian. Lydia, in fact, her whole household, which was probably more than just her immediate family, uh, have become Christians. Uh, but Paul is now in prison. It's the middle of the night, around midnight, and an earthquake rocks Philippi. Uh, such a big earthquake that the prison doesn't collapse, but all the doors in the jail are flung open and the shackles which had held the prisoners, including Paul and his companions, uh, had uh, come loose. They could have escaped. The jailer, who had been given responsibility for making sure that they don't escape, woke up uh, because of the earthquake, saw all the gates open, couldn't see, because it was dark, middle of the night, couldn't see uh, what had gone on, assumed that all the prisoners, including Paul, had escaped and knew that his life was now no longer worth living. Took a sword, was about to kill himself, and Paul calls out, Stop! Don't do it! We're still here! Uh, prior to all of this, Paul and his companions had been singing songs of praise. They had been badly beaten before being thrown into prison, and yet there they were in jail singing songs of praise to God and Christ their Saviour. The jailer had no doubt heard some of these songs as he had dozed off to sleep. And knowing where their hope lay, when his life, his physical, his temporal life was saved by Paul calling out, he ran into that cell, fell at Paul's knees and said to him, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Now, you don't need too much evangelism training to answer that one. If you're a Christian, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That man, that jailer, became the next member of the Philippian church, he and all his household. And just as Lydia had done earlier, the jailer insisted that Paul and his companions, who had just been prisoners, now become guests in his home. And a partnership developed uh, with these people uh, between Paul and this church in Philippi. Uh, Paul visited again uh, five years later, and now he's writing to them again five years later. It seems uh, that there were also people who went back and forth between Paul and the Philippian church. Uh, they stayed in regular contact. So it gives you an idea, including what we read earlier from 2 Corinthians 8, it gives you an idea of quite a vital relationship uh, that began uh, in those dramatic circumstances and has continued to bear fruit uh, over the 10 years between the first visit and the writing of this letter. That's the context, and I think it's very helpful uh, for understanding so much of what Paul writes to the Philippians about and how he writes to them as well. He writes to his old friends, but he doesn't just call them friends. He doesn't even just call them brothers and sisters, as we expect he might. He calls them something else. He calls them partners, partners in the gospel, and that word partner or partnership is very important, I think, for us understanding uh, not just Paul's relationship with the Philippians as, as sort of lookers-on, but I think for our own understanding of the Christian life. This idea of partnership is something that is not intended only for them, but actually for all who put their trust in Jesus. Now, partnership is a strong word. It really is. It describes... I think, working together for a common cause. Does that sound about right to you? Working together 
for a common cause. So it's a word that we might use in various contexts. It's a word that's used in business, a business partnership, where people might be, you know, someone might be a partner in a company or a firm, and they're invested heavily in that in all sorts of ways, their time and their money, and so they work hard for the cause of that business or for making profit or the, just the success of the business. It's a word that comes up in sporting contexts, I think particularly of cricket. Uh, in cricket, partnerships are important. They always talk about the importance of batting partnerships, even bowling partnerships, you know, with those two people working at either end for the cause, the same cause of that team uh, achieving victory. Uh, and it's a term, this partnership term, a term that is used in this letter by Paul to describe partnership in the gospel. The Christian cause, the cause of Christians, is the cause of Christ. Here at APC, we've recently adopted a motto, it's simple, all for Jesus. All for Jesus, because our goal is that all of us, all the time, are giving our all for Jesus, for the cause of Christ. To be partners in the gospel is to be partners in the life-saving and life-transforming news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's to be partners in the declaration of the news that Jesus rose and that he reigns and that he will return to judge the living and the dead. And in the light of that future day, to call all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from their sin. They're running away from God and receive his mercy and his gracious gifts of forgiveness and eternal life by putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the heart of a gospel partnership. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, crikey, I didn't realize I'd signed up for that. I thought I'd just signed up for the bronze membership, you know, like kind of the, the I'll go once a week um, and not get too serious about it kind of deal. Folks, there is no bronze membership. <laughs> We're all gold members here. And it all applies to every one of us to be partners in this cause, the cause of Christ. See, notice it here in Philippians. Paul, in verse 1, very deliberately addresses his letter to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Further down in verse 4, he includes everyone in his prayer of thanksgiving to God for their partnership in the gospel. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I give thanks for your partnership in the gospel. He considers every one of them a partner. And I think, by extension, we are meant to understand that that ought to be true in every church. Everyone is a partner. Everyone has an equal stake in the gospel because the gospel has come to each one of us and given us life and faith and everything. There are no passive passengers. Everyone is called to be an active partner in the gospel. So you might want to know then, what exactly ought this partnership look like? Thanks for asking. Uh, there are many answers to that question in the letter to the Philippians. Each week we're going to discover a new dimension of gospel partnership. And this first week, the answer is prayer. How do you pray like a gospel partner? Uh, 
there's four uh, headings that I'm going to answer that question under. And the first is that we pray as both servants and children. When we pray, we pray as both servants and children. The thing about prayer is that we have to know the one that we pray to. And knowing God will shape how and what we pray. Prayer is inherently personal. We don't pray to a concept or a force. Uh, Prayer isn't wishful thinking. We pray to the God that we know personally, the God we know through the gospel. If you don't know him through the gospel, through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot pray to him. You can say words out into the ether, but those words will only be accepted if you belong to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that. that. He said, no one comes to me except through the Father. You have to uh, know the Lord through Jesus Christ in order to pray. Notice how in verse 3, Paul calls God, my God. It is very personal. I thank my God every time I remember you. So Paul knows who he's praying to. He doesn't just know about him, he knows him. And that's, that's very important. But Paul also knows who he is in relation to God. Firstly, he knows, he understands that he is a servant of God. See it there in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And so as he prays, that awareness of his status as a servant shapes his prayers. That is, he prays about his master's business. That's what concerns him most. He's a servant, and so he sets aside his agenda, and instead he adopts the agenda of his master, of his Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the heart of what he prays about. And yet, Paul also knows something more about his identity and and, uh, who he is before God. He knows that as well as being a servant, he is also a son. He is also a child of God. He's been adopted into God's family because God's one and only begotten son has given up his life so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Paul also prays as a son. And so that's why he prays, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, to his heavenly father. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, he prays about his master's business, but his master is also his father. In other words, he understands he has a role in the family business. That's, That's the nature of this business. It belongs to him just as much as it belongs to his father. And so he prays with warmth and familiarity and with faithfulness and joy. Now I want to ask you folks, do you, do you pray as both a servant and a child, a son or a daughter? You know, do, does your awareness of your standing before God as both servant and child shape how you pray and what you pray for? It's really important that you hold both together. If you only think of yourself as a servant and God as a master, it's possible that you might be reluctant to go to him. It's possible that you might be doubtful that he will even be bothered, concerned or bothered to hear your prayers. But if you pray as only a child, well, you know what children can be like, demanding, self-centered. You, you don't want to be like that with God. And so both are essential. A gospel partner will pray as both a servant and a child. Secondly, uh, gospel partners, Christians, are called to pray because God works. Right? You know, it's interesting that Paul 
conveys his confidence in God to finish the work that he started. Have a look at verse 6. Um, I pray, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Think about what we've already heard about how the church in Philippi began. Paul himself was instrumental, wasn't he? He was the one who was there on the ground. He was the one who brought the gospel. He was the one who met Lydia by the river and who answered the, the jailer's desperate question, what must I do to be saved? And yet Paul understands that he was only a vehicle, only a tool. He was just a messenger and it was God who was at work through him. Notice how he says it. He who began a good work, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He has every confidence that God is the one who is achieving his purpose from beginning to end. And I think it's really important that we share that same confidence in God to do his good work. See, God is not like us. He finishes what he starts. Do you have a lot of unfinished jobs in your life? Amen. Preach it. So many. And you know what? Give up. You'll never get them all done, okay? But God is not like us. He finishes what he starts. He doesn't forget. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't throw us in the too hard basket. He doesn't settle for almost. He gets it done. The words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, apply to everyone who puts their trust in him. Christ's work is done and he will finish what he has begun. Do you have this kind of confidence in God? As, as you adopt the agenda of your heavenly father, do you have this confidence that he is going to achieve everything that he intends through you? Because if you do, you will pray, won't you? If, you? if you don't have that confidence in God, then there's all sorts of ways you'll get it wrong. Firstly, you'll feel a massive burden to do it all yourself to get it done yourself. God wants to relieve you of that burden. Yes, he wants you to work hard, but not as somebody who works with a great burden of responsibility, but rather as somebody who depends on our Heavenly Father to achieve it. We don't want to just get busy. We want to get busy praying because it's God who's going to do his good work. Thirdly, we want to pray because we care. Now, we already do this. Right? That is, we pray about what we care about. It's just that what our prayers reveal might not be all that um, great when it comes to what we care about. It's easy to pray a lot for ourselves, isn't it? Maybe you go beyond that and you pray a lot for those who are closest to you, right? whose lives are connected to yours. Paul also prays about what he cares about. He prays for the Philippians. He prays for many other people as well. He prays for his master's business. And he prays a lot for the Philippians. Whenever I think of you, this is a paraphrase, whenever I think of you, I pray for you. I would love to be able to say that. I do lots of thinking, so much thinking but it's just kind of ruminating and worrying and all that sort of stuff. I wish that those thoughts just turned very quickly to prayers. <laughs> that would be so much more fruitful if they did. 
And that's how Paul prays. Every time I think of you, I pray for you. In verse 4, we read that he prays for them with joy and he prays for them because he loves them. Do you notice how much he loves them? He, he can't sort of not say, this is a very personal letter, I love you, I have you in my heart, he says in verse 7. I long for you, he says in verse 8. And what's the foundation of this longing, this love? Well, it's actually because of the long-standing gospel partnership, the share in God's grace that they have, as he says in verse 5 and verse 7. And you might think, oh, that sounds a little bit removed, a little bit clinical, a little bit impersonal. Folks, it couldn't be further from the truth. We think that our love for somebody else is the strongest kind of love there can be. That's not right. It's God's love for us where the strength lies. You know, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He was told, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That was his answer. We tend to think, well, hang on a second. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength, there'll be nothing left to love others with. <laughs> That's not how it works. You don't run out of love. Rather, knowing God's love in Christ and loving God back actually enables love for others. Right? And that's what's going on for Paul here. He shares this deep connection with these other people who know and share in and, and value the love of God in Christ. They are his gospel partners and so they, they love each other and they work together in that gospel work. Prayer shows that you care so Paul prays for them. He doesn't, though, notice, notice that he doesn't just pray for them. He tells them that he prays for them. Praying for people is good. Telling people you pray for them is even better. And telling them what you pray for them is even better still. Let me encourage you to be somebody who says, not just, I will pray for you. Because for anything like me, not all those prayers get prayed. Rather, pray for people and then tell them what you've been praying for them. And what ought you to pray for them? Well, you can pray anything for them, of course. But I want to say, based on what we see here in Paul's letter, that some prayers are better than others. By which I mean some prayers are about more important things than others. And what Paul prays for the Philippians is what is best. Let's read it. It's just those last few verses in the passage 9 to 11. This is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's a dense few verses uh, and challenging to unpack. But I think that phrase, what is best, captures it all. See, Paul stands at a particular point that he calls the day of Christ Jesus, and he looks at what will matter from that perspective. Paul lives in full view of the return of Jesus Christ, and he knows that that is how to assess a life well lived. He prays for what he wants on that final day for them, and shouldn't we have great concern for each other for those kinds of things as well? He prays not only that they love one another, 
but that love would be informed love, that it would abound more and more in depth of insight, that they will have a love for each other which is not just concerned with their circumstances and life going well for them and all that sort of stuff, but rather for their, for their growth in Christ Jesus, for their growth in righteousness and holiness, for their effectiveness in partnering in gospel ministry. Do you pray not only for each other, but for what is best for each other? Do you pray for people to be getters? I pray that they'll have this and that. that. Or do you pray that people will be givers? Do you pray more for people's outer circumstances or more for people's inner transformation? Do you pray for what other people think or tell you is good for them or do you pray what God, for, for what God says is best? In short, do you pray for people's happiness or do you pray for people's holiness? Folks, it's not necessarily wrong to pray for lesser things but even when it's not wrong, pray for the best and then pray for the rest. And in all things, let's pray, as Paul does, to the glory and praise of God. So that's the ultimate goal of everything, to the glory and praise of God. The reason we want to be gospel partners with one another, encouraging one another in our faith in Christ and our work uh, for the gospel, is so that God himself might receive the glory. Uh, had the opportunity to spend uh, an hour or two with a 97-year-old lady a couple of weeks ago in her aged care room to which she is pretty much confined these days. Uh, she can move from the bed to the chair and the chair to the bed, but that's about it. That's, that's the size of her life at 97 years old. And uh, at the end of our time together, she's a Christian lady, at the end of our time together we prayed together and here's what she prayed. Something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, but something like, uh, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are bringing all the nations of the earth to my door. By which she meant that the people who worked in the nursing home came from many, many different countries around the world. And she understood that she didn't need to go to those countries to meet people from those countries and share the good news of Jesus with them. And that was her heart's desire. But she didn't wait till she was 97 years old to start doing that. She did that because she had had the concern of the gospel, the cause of Christ, on her heart all her life. And so even as her body failed her, even as her memory failed her, even as her words failed her at times as she prayed, she still had the cause of Christ on her heart and was able to express that as we prayed together. Folks, don't wait till you're 97. There is a life that is worth living. There is a life of eternal significance. And though it might seem surprising, at the heart of that life is to be a partner, a gospel partner in prayer. Praying for each other and our growth in Christ. Praying for the cause of Christ in the world. There is no better thing, no better investment that you can make than uh, to pray those prayers. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, help us to see why this matters so much. Convict us that Jesus is the only hope for a lost and dying world. 
Yes, there are many good causes, but the cause of Christ is the best of them all because the cause of Christ is the only one that will uh, stand the judgment. So, Father, help us not to neglect our part in this partnership. Though we might prefer to be silent partners, though, though we might prefer to stand in the background, help us to see that prayer is in the foreground and the responsibility of each one of us. Grow us in this by your spirit. Grow us in our desire to pray and in our desire to pray for your cause. And we pray that all this might be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.